Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to start, we're going to do the whole chapter tonight, if you can believe that. But we're looking at the little horn of the Antichrist, uh, part 2, actually. And we're going to make a comparison between Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth because um, it's a double fulfillment of prophecy, as you'll see as we progress tonight. But in Daniel, as we looked at the Antichrist last week, we, uh, we learned certain things about him, that, um, that the Antichrist is going to overpower uh, the saints for a time. He's going to wear down the saints. He's going to rise up through a ten-nation confederacy. He's going to buddy up with the Jewish people, this Antichrist. He's going to, it seems like he would help them rebuild the temple or just at least open the door for them to rebuild the temple. He'll eventually abolish, uh, the change the festivals of the Jews and he'll abolish God's laws. And he's going to do all of this in a three and a half year time period uh, in, in the last days and in the great seven year tribulation. It will be the second half of the great seven-year tribulation, where everything he's going to pull off is going to be at that time. So the first three and a half years, warn all your relatives, he's going to be a really, really good guy. And he's going to do a lot of good things. But at that, at that mark, somewhere in the middle, when he walks into the, the temple, everything's going to change because he's going to want to be worshipped as God. They're not going to worship him as God. And he's going to go crazy on these people at that time. So um, we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to, first we're going to look at the vision, and then we'll get into the interpretation in the second half of the vision. But I'll give you stuff about the vision as we go along, but mostly second half of the chapter is the interpretation. So first half is more of a informational buildup. So verse 1 and 2 say, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, uh, the king a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Verse 2, I looked in the vision... And it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside uh, the Ulei Canal. Now, Daniel, let's get back in sequence of time. Even though we know, as we study at the end of chapter 5, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown. Remember that? The diverting of the canal? Say, remember that, everybody? Okay. But Daniel's going back again into the Babylonian Empire to tell about something that happened because he names Belshazzar. That was the king of Babylon that got overthrown that night when they came through the water canal. When it says he's over in Susa, that would be in the area of the Persians where, he's gonna, where, this, vi- where this vision comes from. So he catches all, all, this, uh, all this vision going back in the sequence of Babylon historically. Now, he's going to talk about a ram and a goat, and these become very important symbols, and then, of course, later on we'll tell you what they are. We'll tell you before him, but note-wise we'll get there. Verse 3, it says, Then I lifted lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. <clears throat> now, as he looks at this vision, he sees, uh, he sees this ram. This ram has a couple of horns. One horn is longer than the other. Now, 
we know that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians are the ones that conquered the Babylonians. The two horns are Medes and Persians. One horn is longer than the other, correct? This totally corresponds to the previous chapter where it talked about the Medo-Persian Empire where it's on one side lifted up, where one part of it is lifted up over the other. Now we see where one horn of the, of the two together is lifted up over the other, which we know that from history that the Persians became the dominant of the two over the, over the Medes in that, back in history. Now, verse 4 and 5 say, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. Now, this is as the Persian Empire begins to expand. Notice, it doesn't say eastward. Historically, the Persians did not go eastward. We know that looking back in time. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, verse 5, Behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now we see where this, this empire, this ram with the two horns is moving. He's moving east, north, and south, and he's expanding the territory as the Persian empire expands. But then all of a sudden, he starts talking about this male goat now comes on the scene in the middle of it all, and it's coming from the West. We know this is the Greek Empire. We know this is Alexander the Great coming historically, but Daniel is looking forward in history, so they would be coming from the West towards the Persians as they advanced that way. And now the horn, Alexander the Great. Alexander lived like 356 to 323 B.C. We know that Daniel is about 70-some years old at this time. And Daniel is talking about this empire and Alexander the Great 200 years before Alexander and the Greek Empire ever come on the scene. And so when you look at stuff like that, you realize the Bible is not written, it's written by men, but it's inspired by God. Amen? To be able to make these kinds of prophetic predictions and they're spot on. Now, it says that, uh, that they were, well, verse 5, it says that they're, they're moving through the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, what do you think that means? It's got to mean that they're moving swiftly. And we know that Alexander and the, and the Greek Empire, they moved very fast. And they were conquering in record time. In fact, they moved so swiftly and conquered so quickly that in so much area that I have read before that they marched off the map, that they were writing the map as they progressed because there was no map for where they were going because they were conquering so quickly. Now look at verse 6. He came up to the ram. Now here comes this empire of the Greeks. He came up to the ram that had two horns, this Medo-Persian empire, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Verse 7. I saw him come beside the ram. And he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the, ram, <clears throat> and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from its power. Now, aren't you glad I'm the one who has to interpret this, not you? Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord, huh? Well, all this is telling us right here, and you'll see the interpretation later, is that... These, as Alexander the Great 
and the Greek Empire is moving forward, he encounters the Medo-Persian Empire, and he destroys this Medo-Persian Empire, tramples it to the ground. So Alexander and the Empire, they're moving, man, and they are conquering. Now, verse 8 says this, and here's where it starts to take this turn that we need to drill down on throughout the rest of this chapter. It says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Hmm. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. Say little horn. Little horn, that's a big deal. Which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. What do you think the beautiful land is? It's Israel. That's exactly what it is. It is Israel. Now, the male goat, Alexander, he begins to boast. He's conquering and he's moving. And then he's broken off. And in his place come four horns, is what Daniel is describing. And then from one of these four horns comes a little horn. This small little horn out of the four horns. And this little horn moves towards the beautiful land, which once again is Israel. Okay, you still with me now? Because I really don't want to lose you on this one, right? Okay. Okay, now, here we go. Verse 10, 11, and 12. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now, the little horn. This little horn, in your notes, by the way, let me give you the little details of the three verses that we read here. In your notes, I'm going to give you five things. First off, the little horn makes himself equal with God. In fact, the little horn basically makes himself God, is what he does. Secondly, the little horn stops the temple sacrifices. So he's going to stop the Jewish sacrifice. The third thing is, he will defile the temple. It's the abomination of desolation. The fourth thing is, he forces the Jews to come under his power. It says in verse 12, that host, the host will be given over to the horn. So, they come under his power. And fifth, he eliminates God's law. Because he, he takes truth and he just flings it to the ground doesn't acknowledge the truth of God anymore. So that's the little horn. Now remember, the little horn, Alexander the Great, is the horn who killed, who knocked out the two big horns, Medo-Persian. Correct? And he's this horn. And then he's out of the way, and then there's four horns. Remember that? We talked about that. And then from one of the four horns comes this little horn. Are you following me so far? So I want to make sure you, you keep up with me on that one, because I know you can start thinking, there's a lot of horns there, okay? Now, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long 
Will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Verse 14. He said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay, let me try to put this all together here. So, Daniel asks, how long will this last? And the answer was? 2,300 what? It doesn't say 2,300 days. Evenings and mornings. I think that's really important to understand exactly what they're saying. Now, let me give you two ways to look at this. And you can pick whichever one you want. I think they both work. And uh, I couldn't tell you if one or the other is the right one or the wrong one. I don't know. If so I'm going to give you both, okay, on this, on this whole thing. Now, the, and remember, this is a, a double fulfillment prophecy. And you always got to think it's going to be fulfilled in Daniel's future, but it's also going to be fulfilled again in our future. It's a double fulfillment prophecy. It's not just a one-time deal. Now, the first way to look at this is this little horn is a type of the Antichrist. And that would be, this little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Don't try saying it, okay? He would torment the Jews around 171 to about 165 B.C., about 2,300 days, all right? That's one way to look at it. Or you could take that and you could move that and say 2,300 evenings and what? Mornings. Now, you could take those two pieces of each day because there would be a morning and an evening sacrifice. So you could take the days of 2,300, cut it in half, and how many days would that be? Be 1,150. Or a little over, what, uh, three, three years. So you can take that there, and you can look at it that way, that when Antiochus Epiphanes IV, when he went after the beautiful land to conquer it, he took over there for a little over three years, is what he did. So you can look at it one way or the other, and I'm sure most of you will forget everything I just said about that, right after this Bible study, but I really like stuff like that, okay? Now, look at, uh, so you pick whichever one you want to pick. Verse 15 through 19. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Notice, it isn't a man, he just looks like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulei, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Now he hears a voice, because he wants to know, what does this mean? And he hears a voice say, Gabriel, tell this guy what this all means. Now we know Gabriel, right? Gabriel is the angel that appears to the shepherds, announcing the coming Messiah was born. Gabriel is the one, you back up more in time, who came to Mary and said, you will carry the virgin child. Gabriel is the one who came to the father of John the Baptist. So Gabriel is a very big player in, uh, in the eternal realm. So Gabriel's on the scene, and the voice says, Gabriel, tell him what this is all about. Verse 17. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, and he said to me, Son of man, understand the vision. 
pertains to the time of the end. Verse 8. Now, now here's what look, here's what he just said. Even though we know it's a double prophecy, that Antiochus Epiphanes, I don't want to lose you, lived and attacked Jerusalem, Israel, 167 to 165 specifically, but we also know that this vision pertains to the end of time. You see the double prophecy? Yeah. There's two pieces to it. It's something that's going to happen 200 years from Daniel's life right now, but it's also going to happen again in your and my future. We may not be here, or we may have been gone already before, but when that Antichrist comes on the scene, that's the second part of the double prophecy. So it's both deals right there. Now, verse, um, verse I think I'm on 18, yeah. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, think about what this guy just, what Gabriel just told Daniel. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen at the very end of our existence, of mankind, in the, in the final days of planet Earth as we know it right now. He says, I'm going to tell you what this is all about, Daniel. I'm going to tell you what the vision is. And so this double fulfillment will be Daniel looking at it from the historical kings in his future. We will look at it into our future at the, as the end time. So it's this whole double thing. So let's, so let's go on the wild ride, all right? If you weren't confused enough, let's go on the wild ride now, okay? Okay. Here we go. Verse 20. The ram which you saw. Now he's going to tell. This is Gabriel talking. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, now stop there. Daniel is speaking now, remember, going back in time in the time frame of Belshazzar. He's taking us back. He doesn't really know. Media and Persia, they have not conquered Babylon. So now Gabriel is telling him of some futuristic event in that time frame. Do you follow me on that? So see how the Bible is so inspired? So it's telling you futuristic thing. Now watch verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Greece. Is there a Greece at that time? No, no, there isn't. That's 200 years into the future. And now he's telling them, this is the name, this is what's coming. Is that incredible or what? It's the same thing if you went into Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesies 150 years before Cyrus, the Persian king, ever comes on the scene. We read his name 150 years before he comes on the scene. And now we're reading this 200 years before it happens. And I've told you before, this is why some people think that Daniel had to have written this way later in time because he gets so many things spot on. He's getting Alexander spot on. He's getting the Medo-Persian spot on. He's telling you about the Greek empire. He's nailing all these things. It's an incredible, incredible prophecy. Now, what verse am I in? Yeah, verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, Greece, first king, Alexander, okay? The broken horn and the four horns, now he's going to get into that. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, from this Greek nation, although not with his Power. Now, in your notes, let me give you definitions here. The goat is Greece. We know that, right? 
the large horn is Alexander the Great. But the four horns, I haven't given you the definition of the four horns yet. The four horns is the Greek empire divided up between four generals. This is what's amazing to me. He says there's going to be a Greek empire. He calls it by name. Then he names this large horn. We know it's Alexander the Great. And then we know once that's broken off, he says there's going to be these four horns. You know, from history, we look back and we know that when Alexander the Great dies, that he gives his empire to his four generals. It breaks off into four different, it splits four ways into his four generals. Now let me tell you about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, you know what his mother told him? She told him that his father descended from Hercules. So he's thinking he's somebody really, really special. Does anybody remember Alexander the Great's father's name? Philip. Philip the Macedon. You're correct on that one. You have all probably New Testament read the, the little letter of the Philippians, right? Well, the Philippians, Philippi, the city, it was named after, guess who? Philip the Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. And so there's all these little connections historically as we read these things. Now, Alexander the Great, as he's moving with his armies, and he's a really young guy, and he's a real aggressive guy, he conquers Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Mesopotamia in record time. Now, question, what is our New Testament written in what language? It's in Greek. Do you remember why it's written in Greek? I've told you this before. Because when Alexander conquers, and he's conquering that whole area and all the areas around him, he wants to make sure that everything is cultured Greek. It's called Hellenization. And so as he's spreading, he is forcing people, because they're conquered people now, you must learn the Greek language. And you must learn the culture of the Greeks. And this is what he's doing wherever he's going. And so this takes over. So by the time Jesus comes along, everything is Hellenized Greek. And that's why the New Testament language is Greek. Do you know why it's written over Jesus' head, you know, the king of the Jews? It's written in, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Did you, you know why? Because Hebrew is the language of the Jews, right? Greek is the language of the Hellenization, and Latin is the language of the entire world. So that's why it's written in the three languages over Jesus' head. So everybody walking by, because that was a well-known walkway, travel way, where he's crucified, everybody walking by would be able to read that in a language at least that they understood. But it was Alexander who brought this. Now Alexander, does anybody remember how old he was when he died? I gave you the date of his, how long, how old was he? He's like around 33, somewhere in there. Yeah, 33. Do you remember what he died of? He had malaria, and he was an alcoholic. And so because of his malaria, he caught malaria, and he had, in his alcoholism, he couldn't, he couldn't survive. And it killed him around age 33. He was very, very young. And so when he dies, you know, he said, made a statement, something like, Give the kingdom to the strong. In other words, everything I've conquered. And so they divided up into these four generals. But remember, we read that out of one of these generals comes a what? A little horn. 
That's right. So somewhere in there comes this little horn. Now, we're going to go back in time now because we're going we're to parallel Antichrist with the Antichus, Antichus Epiphanes IV. But now we have to go back to an, an, Antichus Epiphanes IV. It's so hard to say that sometimes. Now, the little horn, looking Daniel's looking 200 years into, from five, now he's looking about 300 years into the future. He's going to talk, he's, he's sharing with us about the little horn. Now let me tell you about the little horn 300 years into Daniel's future. Not the one Antichrist coming in our future. Double prophecy. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. <clears throat> he comes from one of the four generals. What, the general that's the Seleucids. That's where he comes through, Antiochus. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes, he gave himself that name. It means illustrious one. Sometimes I've read that it means God manifest, Epiphanes. The Jews hated him so much because he was such an evil person, they called him Epimenes, which means madman. And so they gave, uh, they gave, them, gave him a name, slightly different than his name, to really say what this guy was really all about. It says he goes after the beautiful land. Remember that? Okay, so Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he goes and he tries to conquer Egypt. He's going in there. But he's met by opposition, I believe, by Roman armies. He comes back and he's angry. And he's going to take it out on somebody. We know it's the beautiful land. Daniel's prophesying in the future. And sure enough, here he comes and he comes to Jerusalem. He sends 22,000 of his soldiers into the city, says, it's a peace mission. You don't have to worry about us. But once he gets in there, he attacks the city on the Sabbath. He takes and he kills the men. He takes the women. He takes the children as slaves. I mean, he's just taking over everything. He plunders the entire city. And he wants to do one thing. He wants to wipe out the Hebrew religion. He wants to just annihilate it off the face of the earth. Now, what does he do once he gets into Jerusalem? Here he is. He's, the, he's a picture of the Antichrist to come. And here's what happens when he gets in there. He converts the temple. He removes Yahweh worship, and he changes it to pagan worship. He takes a pig. He slaughters the pig on the brazen altar. He takes the blood of the pig. He smears it all over inside the temple. How many know that's defiling the temple, right? He defiles the temple. Now, he makes him celebrate, or he eliminates, the, the celebration of the Jewish feasts. He tells them, you cannot observe the Sabbath anymore. Uh-uh, no more. He tells them, don't even think about reading the scriptures. In fact, he gets every sacred book that he can find of theirs, and he burns them. He destroys them. And so he's a madman on a rampage. But here's one of the worst things he does besides defiling the temple. He says... You cannot, do not circumcise your baby boys. Question, is that a big deal? Because for the Jewish people, the circumcision of the baby boys is the covenant relationship with God. You go back to Genesis 15. Abraham is the first Hebrew, first one. And that was the covenant relationship. He says, you can't do that. You're not allowed to. Two moms decide, no, I'm not going to obey this, and they circumcise their babies. Antiochus Epiphanes IV catches wind of that. He has the babies murdered. 
Then he hangs the dead babies around the neck of the mothers for them to walk around like that. Then he eventually takes the dead babies and he throws them over the wall, the, Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem, because he's taken over the city. He's just like he's a he's a psycho in Daniel's future, three hundred years. But he parallels a psycho in our future. Amen. Yes. He's a par- He's the first fulfillment. He's the he's the he's a picture of the Antichrist coming, the psycho that's coming to our world one day, that this world is setting up for. Now. Look at verse 23 to 26. So, did I make sense so far? Yes. Okay, you're following me. Okay, I want to make sure, because it's not an easy chapter to follow. Now, verse 23. In the latter period of their rule. Now, he's going to end time. See the double fulfillment? Say yes or no. Okay, now we're going. In the latter period of the rule. When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent, and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. You know, that... That statement, I, you know, I, I, when I read it, and I even did, when I was reading again today, I, he, that, that whole idea of he will cause deceit to succeed, it's just a fascinating statement that he will use deceit and lies to succeed. I mean, that just fits in with our culture today, does it not? I mean, it just, that one just jumps out at me when I read it. He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. Notice by his influence. He'll be a very charismatic personality. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Dumb move. And he will be broken without human agency. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret. For it pertains to what? Many days days in the future. So now he shifted him to the the end of, uh, which is in our future, the end of of earth. Now, this is talking about the actual Antichrist. Now we've gone from Antiochus Epiphanes IV to the Antichrist. Now let me give you some fill-ins right here. The first thing we find about him here is that he will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will be mighty, but not by his own power. Now, I want you to keep your finger here or marker here, and I want us to go to a place I've taken you before. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go to your right. Because we're going to flip back and forth. You've got to keep your marker in both. It's going to be real fast back and forth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've come here before. This is an Antichrist chapter. So he will be mighty, but not by his own power. Now check this about the Antichrist at verse uh, verse 8 and 9. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, when Jesus shows up, Antichrist is done. That is the one, Antichrist, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan 
with all power and signs and false wonders. Will he operate in his own power or through someone else's power? Someone he'll operate through satanic power is what he's going to operate through. So that's what we see first thing right there. Now, the second thing in your notes, keeping your finger in both places, he will destroy uh, holy people. He will destroy holy people. Now keep your finger in Thessalonians and look back at chapter 8 in verse 24. Look at the very bottom of verse 24 of Daniel 8. I'm just... He will destroy mighty men and the what? And the holy people. Oh, okay. Now, <clears throat> keeping your finger in both places, we'll, we'll get there now. He's going to go after holy people. Now, just for the sake of understanding, so nobody goes home thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to the rapture. I'm, I'm going to the tribulation. I, I believe very strongly that Christians are not going to go through the tribulation period. I think there's plenty of evidence that we're going to be raptured pre-tribulation. I know some of you probably believe maybe mid. Some of you might believe the whole thing. I, I just see too much evidence the other way. And so I always teach it that way. But he's going to go after holy people, this Antichrist. Well, Antichrist is going to go on the rampage in the great seven-year tribulation. So who are the holy people in the great seven-year tribulation? Who are those people? Well, those are, remember what I told you before. Who are going to be evangelizing? Who's going to be evangelizing the earth? 144,000 male virgin Jews. These are Messianic Jews become followers of Christ, and they're going to evangelize. Plus, there's two big witnesses, too. Who are they? I think they are Moses and Elijah. I think those are the two. They'll be evangelizing. So will many people be coming to Christ in the tribulation period? Say, yeah. yeah. You better believe. I think it'll be one of the greatest harvests that the world has ever seen. But there's a problem with getting saved in the tribulation period, is there not? Because you've got an antichrist. Does he want people to get saved? He's going to hunt people down to force them to do what? Take the, take the mark of the beast. He's going to hunt them down and hunt them down. And he's going to force them. I showed you before, Revelation 20 and verse 4, that you see that there are people that will be beheaded for their faith in Christ coming out of the tribulation period. He's going to set up things to force people. So he's going to go after the holy people in the tribulation period. It's going to be a wild, crazy time. Do you, I'm going to say this, but I can't explain it because it takes too long. There are going to be people who can hide from the Antichrist, don't take the mark, put their faith in Christ, or maybe don't put their faith in Christ, but don't take the mark because we told them don't do this, and they will make it through the, the seven-year tribulation. Did you know that? They will live through it. And they will make it on the other side, but there's a thousand-year reign on the other side with a judgment at the end of that. And that's all I can say about that, okay? Because it takes too long to explain that. But that's how it's all going to roll out. But he's going to chase down the, the, the Christian people. Now, the, one of the big things Antichrist is going to do, again, is uh, look back at 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse 3 and 4. Remember this? Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So I have a gut feeling, it's just my gut feeling, that there's going to be a massive outpouring one more time. I hope America is part of it, but there's going to be a massive apostasy too, where there's a great falling away from God. 
But it's going to come. And it says here, it's going to come first. And then after that comes, the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. He is the man of lawlessness. Remember, lawlessness means no ability to follow the laws of God. None whatsoever. That's what the idea of that word is. Now watch what he does to Santa Christ. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the what? Temple of God displaying himself as being God. Why would he do that? Because what has Satan always wanted? He's wanted to be God and he wants what? He wants to be worshipped. So through his, in a sense, his son, inhabited by a demon, he's going to take, want the worship for himself to send it to Satan. Now, when he steps in that temple, understand, he's just doing the same thing Antiochus Epiphanes IV did way back in 167 and 165 BC. This guy's going to do it in the future. When he does that, the Jews are going to know they have been had, correct? They're going to run. Do you think he's going to let them off the hook? There ain't no way. He's going to chase them down. And he's going to chase them down. And many, including myself, believe the place that the Jews will run, and we went there four years ago, in a place called Petra, Petra, in Jordan, today's area of Jordan. It is a narrow opening. The walls are straight up. I can't remember how many hundreds of feet up they were. But it's a narrow opening. He's going to chase them there. This is a carved out city, carved out by the Nabataeans before... uh, B.C. time, and they're going to live there, and, they're going to, and then he's going to be diverted, but he's going to chase them down. He's going to chase them. I had read, I've read this, I don't know if it's true, but I read this many times over the years, a certain pastor went into, went into Petra, Petra, and he put scriptures in there in containers in certain places. So when the Jews get there, they will have those scriptures. He put in there, if memory serves me right, Matthew chapter 24, the end times, where it talks about the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist walks into the temple. They will read these things, and they will come to the understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, that this has happened, that's all prophetically true in the New Testament. Isn't that wild? I mean, it's just a wild thing that's going to happen. Now, let's read on, or write on. One more to fill in, a couple more things. He will fight against Jesus. And I said earlier in verse 25, that's the stupidest thing you've ever heard, right? It's like, wait, you're going to fight again. You already lost. You know him from eternity, and you're going to fight against him again? And, you know, back in verse 25, it says, he will even oppose the prince of princes. That doesn't even make sense. And the last fill-in is, he will be defeated, but not by human power. I like that. You can go back to Daniel now. Verse 25, it says he will be broken at the very end of verse 25 without human agency. Stop. Go back in your mind now. Remember, and we said this a couple times, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. Yes. The head of what? Gold. Gold. The chest of what? That's right. The loins got area of what? Bronze. The legs of what? Iron. And then the feet, toes of what? Clay and iron. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Ten-nation confederacy, antichrist, right? But at the very end of it, in the dream, what does Nebuchadnezzar see? A giant rock. But what's unique? What does he say about it? Not cut by human hands. It's a supernatural thing. Not cut by human hands. It's back in chapter 2 of Daniel. And that rock is going to crush the ten toes. It's going to crush 
the ten-nation confederacy that Antichrist rises to. It's going to crush it. It's not going to be made by human hands, this giant stone. And right here you see it again. He will be broken without human agency. That means this, that in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back in the second coming, when Jesus comes in the rapture, remember, these are the two distinctions, he never touches down on planet Earth. His feet never touch the Earth. We meet him in the clouds, correct? But when he comes in the second coming, Revelation 19, it's a whole other ball game. It says that he will, Zechariah tells us, that when he comes down, he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the mountain splits from east to west. So he comes down, and that's when he comes, and he puts basically Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, he, he, he puts them in their place. And everything changes in that moment. Now, let me read the last verse, then I want to give you two last thoughts. Verse 27 of Daniel 8. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted. Wouldn't you be? I'd be like, that's enough, okay, Gabe, okay. And sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision. There was none to explain it. Huh. So it made him sick. He was exhausted, but he got up and he carried on with his life after that. So let me give you a, a few thoughts on this and then we'll close because it's time. I can't believe it's already time. Okay. Let's go back to Antiochus Epiphanes IV. When he goes in the temple and defiles it, the Jews are outraged, right? Does anybody remember the name of the guy whose family rises up to fight him? It's the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. And they rise up and they fight and they battle, and they fight, and they battle. These freedom fighters. And it takes about three years, but they defeat Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Then they rededicate the temple. They cleanse it, rededicate it. And on December 25th, 165 B.C., they dedicate it. And a new festival is born, and we know that as Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. But you have these freedom fighters fight back, the first guy in the fulfillment of the dual prophecy. Now think about that. If that came true on the first part of the dual prophecy and Antiochus Epiphanes IV was defeated, can we trust God that when the next person comes in that, the Antichrist, that he will be defeated too, just like the other one was? And it was all prophesied that way. We can trust that, right? So let me tell you what that does for me, and hopefully for you. Does it look crazy in this world? <laughs> it's upside down. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I, just when I think we can't get more insane, I think we're more insane. And it feels like, oh my gosh, we're losing. But we don't lose, do we? We know that we win. We know that we win. And so we can rest in that, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like. Okay, let me give you one last thought on this whole thing. Because when Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, he sets everything straight. If you ever hear the question, and I like to give you these ways 
to dialogue and defend your faith. Once again, if you ever hear the question, why doesn't God do something about evil? The first thing you should ask him is, are you talking about the evil out there or the evil in here? Which evil? Because they're just as evil as anybody else, right? So you got to ask them questions like that. The evil out there, the evil in here. The second question you ask them, if God did something about evil, let's say he started tonight at midnight, what would happen to you and me? We'd be gone, man. Okay, those, those are two free ones. You've heard me say that many times. But when somebody asks you, why doesn't God do something about evil? You need to remember this. And this is your worldview as a Christian. And if you don't settle your worldview, you'll always be all over the place like shifting sands, just like the verse. And that's this. Is the story over? Or are we living somewhere in the story? We're somewhere in God's story. It's not over. So when they say, why doesn't God do something about evil? Well, guess what? It's not over. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 19 when you see the end of the story. And when Jesus comes back and he returns to earth and he plants his feet, it says specifically at the end of chapter 19, beginning of chapter 20, that he takes the Antichrist, the false prophet. They are flung into the lake of fire and brimstone. He takes Satan and he, he chains him up for 1,000 years. All evil all temptation, everything will be gone. It'll be over. It'll be done. So when God, when people ask you, why didn't you do something about evil? Well, they don't realize we're not at the end of the story yet. Because the day is coming when Jesus will do something about evil. He will take care of business. And so, and, and, and that's just a great way, a great way to answer the question, why doesn't God do something about evil? doesn't mean they're going to accept it, but that's the worldview. That's your worldview as a Christian and how you should look at it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, God, as we looked at these, this double prophecy of Antiochus and the Antichrist, first we're amazed at your scriptures and the prophetic specifics, God, that are given to Daniel and they've come to pass and then the future fulfillment will come to pass. Lord, I pray that we, God, could grasp these things and be able to share some of them if the time or if the opportunity arises. But Lord, we need to always know that we win. The story's not over. We win. No matter what it looks like, you're coming back and we win. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.